folks. Welcome to the Track and Field Performance Podcast, episode 26. Today I had the fortune of being joined by Coach Danny Mackey of the Brooks Beach Track Club located in Seattle, Washington. Coach Mackey has been working with distance athletes ranging from 8 to 10 kilometers for over 10 years now. And he discussed his training philosophy in a number of different ways, not only from the energy system standpoint, but also from a biomechanics standpoint, plyometrics training and strength and conditioning work. Many of coaches want to know about this sort of physical adaptations and, and so forth in order to improve distance running performance, but we went into much more than that. Coach Mackey has recently been involved with a docu-series that I found extremely fascinating called The Brain of the Beasts, and I would encourage all of you to go onto YouTube and have a look at those four parts that are extremely insightful. We talked about lifestyle and hobbies and philosophy, the status of European distance running and how they have kind of made it to the world stage over the last number of years. So I feel like this episode had a bundle of information, not just for training prescription, but also athlete management and also I would say coach management, how they manage themselves day in and day out, because I'll be honest in saying that Coach Mackey gave me more information about himself than I was anticipating, and I appreciate him for being so candid with his journey as a coach, but I think it serves as a very useful platform for coaches to realize the outlets that they may need to explore in order to become the best version of themselves. So... I hope you enjoyed the episode and before I let you go and listen, I want to thank the affiliate of this podcast, Track Barn, who have continuously supported this podcast for over a year now. Um, as I mentioned in previous episodes, they are specialists in customized track and field apparel as well as facility equipment and spikes from various different brands for various different disciplines. So if you want to avail of their site-wide goods, you can use the promo code TNF10 at the checkout for a 10% discount. Thanks again for your listenership. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I am here today to be joined by the head coach of the Brooks Beast Track Club, um, Danny Mackey. Danny, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm doing good. We just finished practice like a half hour ago. So that's always good. I love practice. It's beautiful here in Seattle too. So yeah, things are good. Lovely stuff. I suppose when I think about Seattle, I think about, you know, there are similarities in the weather to Ireland uh, for most of the year, but you probably get a bit better in the summers. Usually what temperature would it be around, you know, the May to, to September months? It'll be 88 degrees today. So it's, Fahrenheit so yeah we don't you all there are, are cooler than us in the in the summer for mm-hmm. sure yeah mm-hmm. we get pretty hot yeah that's yeah. that's nice I think we'd we'd uh we'd complain a lot less about the weather if we got a, a good break from the gray um 50 to 60 degree weather at some point during the year but it it often hangs around for a little longer than we'd like um yeah. but conducive to some training environments that are obviously favored and you have a big group in the Brooks uh, Beast Track Club and I suppose how how have you assessed the year for you guys overall thus thus far? Uh, I would say it was an average year. Um, 
uh, out of the, seven out of the 13 PR, which is pretty low for us. Uh, we usually are higher than that. And um, maybe about half of them made finals in the domestic championships. Whereas last year we had almost everybody except one. Um, so we had a couple and we had some, we had a little, so some of it was just like, I think there were some cultural things that I didn't anticipate in 2021 building. Some of it was circumstance where we had the biggest rookie class that we've ever brought in. And that's not easy to manage regardless of how much experience you have. And then some of it was a little bit of bad luck. Um, you know, some of our top athletes got COVID. Actually, all of them did at one, well, aside from Marta, at really bad times. And so, you know, like Ali Bohalski, Henry Wynn, and Josh Kerr got, got COVID like right around the championships. And so, yeah, just when that stuff piles up, it, if you can come out of it average, that's probably good. But I have very high expectations for the team and for myself as a coach and the athletes have very high expectations. And so average feels like an athlete feels like a failure for grading. Uh, so I, I was, uh, yeah, I work with a, um, a performance therapist myself just because my job's really stressful. And so we were just talking about that in, in my, um, cause I had her, I had her right before practice, my meeting with her on Monday. And so, yeah, I, I'm just been, I'm still frustrated about some things this year and we have a couple more races left, but yeah, that's just, that's how the year went. And so some things will change for next year that we can, can, that I can control. And I'm excited for those things. I think like uh, it's not that much different than when I was an athlete, where if I came off a disappointing end of the year, I tend to be, my personality type is like, I tend to get solution oriented and I dig my heels in more and I get excited about those, that, uh, that, that I have hope. And so usually by the end of August, I'm pretty tired and I'm just like, I can finish these races up. I'm excited for that. So they're doing things that I'm like, cannot wait for a break. I'm, this is the most, I'd say laser focused. I've been about October 10th. That's when the season starts back up. Then I've, then I've been, and this is my 10th year. And I think some of it's because I feel like there's variables that I can control that are going to have a positive impact on how the team does. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I think that, you know, I learned a lot this year in, in some areas that, uh, you know, 10 years in, you think, you know, a lot, but you don't, or I, I don't. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Cause I know it seems like it's all very fresh and also with, you know, your use usage of the performance therapy, I think more and more um, coaches have said to me now that using the services of a, you know, mental uh, performance practitioner and so forth is just, really key to allow themselves to sort and kind of sift through different um, stressors that clearly go alongside um, what you're learning because the athletes are learning about themselves through their own journeys. But I think we often forget, like, as you just mentioned, 10 years into your journey now as a, as a elite coach, you haven't figured out or, or seen every situation that you possibly can. And um, it's really important to kind of take that solution um, focused approach and, I suppose it's it's really frustrating. I'd imagine when you have a ton of things that you can't control, whereas when you're a very diligent and, you know, um, analytical, 
it's it's somewhat of a relief at least to say that okay by x date i'm going to start implementing these things so they don't happen again yeah i think um yes i agree with everything he said um there's kind of a yin and yang if you really if you were to reduce psychology um you know, people who have a growth mindset tend to do well in the jobs that we work in. And uh, they also have high accountability, which is really good because you can only learn that way. But it's the best because, you know, if something happens and you don't think it was an external thing that caused it. So, you know, if you listen, remember, I just said, like, the first thing that happened was stuff that we can, can control. But then like COVID happened. And so if you're somebody that the, the downside is if you're somebody who is operates on my brain is like there's been points like days where i've been so upset about how i couldn't have prevented josh to get from getting covid that i beat myself up about it and that's not good for your that's not good people who have this type of mindset can angle towards depression you know so there's a lot to manage with that and i think it's um yeah so it's not all good to have this mindset you got to know that there's like we have limitations as people. And so I try to like be aware of that as I've kind of aged and just like mm-hmm. been more self-aware because ultimately uh, as a head coach, there's a leadership element to there. And then we're also in the same kind of community and, and, and the team. And so they have reflect, they reflect on how I am. So I try to be, try to do a good job of like just taking, just being taking care of my blind spots and my struggles and, and knowing that, just because I think a certain way that's not going to be all positive because you would normally think I was, that's how I, it's how I struggled as an athlete too. It's like, I just thought like harder and digging my heels in and being like, you know, bullheaded and laser focused was going to get the job done. And it wasn't until when I was in grad school, I started taking easy days and backing off that like I started to perform way better. So it's not any different in the job. Now my personality trait will bias towards a direction. So yeah. yeah. And during grad school, if I'm not mistaken, you stu- you studied exercise physiology. Is that correct? Or somewhere in that, that realm? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, exercise physiology. And then I, my research thesis, which got published was in biomechanics. So I wanted to focus most on the physiology part because in the endurance world, that is more predominant, but I know that biomechanics was extremely important. So tried to get as much as I could in the to 24 months to get both of those worlds um, as high levels of understanding as I could. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was, that was, I've said this before, I think on interviews, but that was the best decision I've made career wise was that doing that. Interesting. And, and do you think that like biomechanics approach has taken shape in any of your coaching with what you do today? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. I think it has helped with injury prevention. I think one of the reasons why our improvement curve is high um, is that I I can understand how to help somebody be more efficient biomechanically because I have like a pretty good uh, baseline knowledge of it, and I'm I'm like because I've been exposed in that world and got so deep into it. I mean, my, my primary 
advisor is an engineer, a mechanical engineer. So, you know, I had to deal with him chewing up my thesis for two years and do the research with him. And so uh, that stuff's super important for athletes because like sprinters really sprint coaches, the good ones know that, know it. And so distance, they don't have the metabolic issues that we have to deal with. So you have to kind of like, I have to kind of, as an endurance coach, I have to have like both worlds in there. And, uh, you know, my, my understanding has like changed over the 10 years, but I think of it as like mute was music. Cause I play the guitar and I've seen people that understand music theory really well, but they can riff off of it. They can, they can like be creative. And so I've just gotten like, in the last probably two years, like fairly confident in the, in it. And so, uh, but more exploratory where I'm pretty open-minded to some like crazy shit that I might hear biomechanically. I'm like, and I'll think through it and I'm like, Oh, that's right or wrong. Oh, there's something there. And so, and I think it's also helped me be really fortunate that I have um, some super smart friends and, and, a, and a mentor that have a, a high competency in biomechanics. So yeah, I think it's helpful for sure. And more often than not, you're probably getting asked at least by other distance coaches who see, you know, what a high level your guys perform at is about the energy system work. But I'd imagine that you can accomplish better quality and better quality more consistently if you have, you know, interventions there that you will set up, you know, throughout the year. And I don't know how they look. And that's the question I'm going to ask you is how do you start to embed routines or practices to improve your athletes biomechanics so that those kind of i guess miles or, or workouts can be accomplished on a consistent basis because you said that it has played a role in health athlete health yeah uh well the first person that when brooks was able to have more money to uh, put into the team the first person i i hired was a, a, a physiotherapist not a coach and so so she, so her name's Sarah Bear. So she's really, really good. And I, you know, if I see one of the athletes I've been working with for a while um, do a stride, I can kind of pull them off like a pit crew and say, "Hey, this is what we need to look at." And Sarah can do that herself as well. But like, but I, but I can do that. I don't need a physical therapist there to to um, to lead that. I can work congruently with her uh, on, on like at least diagnostic stuff. And then when it gets into the, the weeds of her expertise, it's different, but yeah, I have to be able to speak her language to some degree. Um, so that's one area it helps. And then like I, one of the way I implement it is, and this is one thing that I will do better in October because I used to be a college professor. And so I, I teach them why this matters because if they don't, and I, I have athletes that think it's ridiculous they think it's stupid. And I don't try to change their form. One of the things I tell them, because I do feel like I understand it is, I mean, I use the example of squats. Like they, you, not all people uh, squat the same, even though there's a textbook way to squat. And so, cause you could literally have your pelvic and your femoral neck orientated in your body differently bone wise than somebody else. And then you have ligaments and tendons that have different ranges of motion in there. So there's individual signatures within people's strides that for how they were born or injuries or compensation patterns, whatever it is, like that's, that is how they run to a degree, but you can still optimize it. So, you know, 
if thinking of like Marta is going to run differently than Nia. So for a ton of reasons, but we could still pull them until this like optimal form. And so some athletes just don't, they just think it's dumb and they're stubborn and, uh, but some just don't know a lot. Don't know because they don't, if you're in college and I think even if you're in a great program, you get your 18 to 22, they have 50 athletes and they're going to target the training and that stuff, because that's more important. You have to be smart as a college coach to work on the more important things. And so when I come in here and I'm having them do drills like a skips and B skips and high knees as part of practice together, they're like, what is this? This is what sprinters do. And I'm like, yeah, but we're going to spend 30 minutes a week doing this. And I'll explain to you why. So, you know, I think it's working with the physical therapists and physios and then also teaching the athletes the foundational knowledge. So if they're on your podcast and they say, why do you, Danny, have you do this? They should be able to explain it. And if they can't, I guarantee that'd be the one or two athletes that don't want to do it. They're just not bought in just one air out the other. They're like, I just want to run 120 miles a week and run hard. It's stupid. But I would say, well, good luck. I hope you're blessed with amazing genetics and never can get hurt or you have beautiful biomechanics because you you probably won't make it to your second contract, even here. You have to like, I, I've not met an athlete that's been, I had a long career that does not have an understanding of this stuff. You know, Nick Simmons was a great example because he was one of the first athletes that I got that was super high level, but it was the tail end of his career. Nick, Nick understood that stuff. He understood why it mattered, why the stuff in the weight room mattered, why the drills mattered. And he is also this like kind of blue collar guy that just wanted to like, you know, not wear a watch and run, but he knew that he had to be a professional. So they had to do that stuff. And that's different too. Like I'm, we work with professional athletes. It's like super thin margins at this level. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense. And it shows how you can have a balance by just being someone who likes to get their, their head down and work hard, but also recognize that the hard work ain't going to get done if there's discrepancies. And he, I don't want to comment too much on, on his form, but he seemed like he was kind of like a little bit more raw in terms of his form than, than most like middle distance runners who are a little bit smoother naturally. Um, he looked like he was, he was just more brutish if, if you will. Yeah, though you're right. hundred percent though. If you break down parts of Nick's biomechanics, they're pretty dang good. So when you see it together, Mm -hmm. He looks like a bull in a china shop. It's just, but, but if you look at his foot strike, that's pretty good. You know, where it lands. If you look at his hip positions, it's pretty good. If you look at his elbow angles, like those are pretty good. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's probably why he ran, he got silver medal at worlds and ran 142 and made a bunch of teams. Yeah. So it's now, now that Nick is older and he doesn't take care of himself that much, because why should he? but he's still active and stuff like that. Now it's like things are tightening up more, but yeah, he's, he's got pretty good biomechanics. Yeah. Surprisingly. He does. He does a really good job of putting his content out there, which shows that he's like pretty receptive to different things. I've just noticed he's, he's very popular on YouTube. So I, I I can see that, you know, the blue collar aspect might be there, but it's also like, he's pretty open-minded to like different ways of doing things. Um, He's an interesting channel. I know it's pretty popular. Yeah. So one thing I did want to go into just off the back of that, though, is, you know, when you're looking at and I don't think it's a big debate per se, but I'm sure people are always asking you about balancing 
aerobic, anaerobic, and alactic work for the the types of athletes that are between the ranges of 800 meters to to 5k. Um, and of course, there is the coaching manuals that say this is the system for this event and how much it dominates it and so forth. But if you could give me a rough outline for you know those kind of ranges, like not necessarily how much miles are they running, but how what takes preference for you from shorter to longer stuff, at least to some degree? So I think it's really good to understand the textbook numbers mm-hmm. because I think specific, because then you could start to look in the realm of specificity mm-hmm. and then, so, you know, 800 is maybe 28% more, um, anaerobic than the 15 mm-hmm. and so then that would mean okay we should be doing spending a little bit less time doing like slow you know 60 percent of max aerobic mileage than than uh of their overall training than the 1500 and so that's one way i would look at it um you know they that 15 800 people would run now the 5k and 15 are pretty dang similar you're mm-hmm. looking at like i don't know six seven percent difference that's it um, but, uh, yeah, so, so between the eight and the 15, the eight people tend to run less volume. So if you're looking at somebody like Nia, uh, Aiken, so she, she's, I use her because this is hers. The, uh, we signed her in 2020. So we have second year with her. So she's PR by over two seconds in the eight and over two seconds in the 400. And so she's run 158 twice. One of those 158 she won, which is great. And then she ran 52 eight in the open four. So she was like two flat mid and uh, 54 nine in college. And so she runs about 40 miles a week. And she does some sort of technical strides two days a week. And then she's doing um, usually anaerobic, variances of anaerobic work two days a week. And so when you start to break that down, it's like, probably 25% of her running is quality, like higher in the quality. Whereas somebody like um, Marta runs 65 miles a week. She runs at 15. And so she runs 65 miles a week. And we spend more time doing threshold work with her. She does that, you know, some version of it once a week. And yeah, so the, you know, the quality of relative to her overall starts to drop to probably like 20%. And she does more of the mid-level anaerobic work with tempo stuff. I mean, Nia still does that, but not not as much. So, uh, and some of it is just limitations in the human body. Like if, you know, if I pumped them full of, of drugs, then Nia could run more and Marta would sprint more. But like the reason why specificity is such an important filter is because we are limited about what, and that's what makes the sport beautiful is, is when you're just who you are as a, your brain and the body that you're given, how can you work with it? And so the, that high end anaerobic work is hard in the musculoskeletal system and hormonal system. There's a high biological cost to it. So we can't do, you know, eight mile, 10 mile recovery runs. Like that doesn't, she just, it'd be great, but it just makes the risk of injury and overtraining go up. So, you know, whereas a temple run, something that Marty would do at like 75% of her max, she does it in like on trails and brook shoes, not beating her body up much. And then her, you know, metabolic cost is not super high. So she can, you know, do more on the other days. So there's, and then there's the individual nuances in muscle fiber, you know, like somebody who's fast twitch 
the oxidative capacity is lower, so they you know they tend to not recover as quick day to day, but their nervous system is really responsive. So it's all those things kind of matter. But I think it is really important to understand the, the demands and and then not get super. I'd have to like think through like I did just now of like percentages of the week. I used to do that when I got started coaching. The longer needs to be this, but I think it's a good if you don't if you never coached before, you're getting into it. You try that. So you have a point of view and then you use that point of view to adjust up or down and then adjust depending on the athlete and then depending on the season. So, you know, the numbers change like the 800 crew, for example, need and do strides today. So you're just like, well, Danny, you said she does it twice a week. Well, yeah, I know, but it's late August. So Nia's, I'm more worried about her being tired. She got to fly to Europe on Friday. So we just didn't do it today. Mm-hmm. And, um, She's doing hill repeats tomorrow, which in August would never happen because the turnover is really slow on hill repeats. And why is she doing it? Well, her lower back was sore on Friday. Ground reaction forces are high, are high on the track, less on the hill. So she's going up a 45-second hill, walking down because I don't want her lower back getting hurt, but I want her heart rate up super high. And a lot. So, you know, I can explain why we're doing it. Still with specificity, but I'm having to adjust based on like a traditional model because it's end of August and she's tired. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That, that makes sense. I mean, there's subtleties in like, for example, long jumpers do short hills in the winter months quite often sled runs, for example, but there are times where for whatever reason, based on things you're seeing in the technical model or um, gaps in competition periods where you might re kind of visit some of that work to, to ingrain some of those tendencies and and almost reboot the system. And as you say, maybe um, the person has an Achilles issue and, you know, running on the track with spikes or sprinting on the track with spikes um, would be your first go-to selection. But for whatever reason, uh, going on flats on a hill will take the pressure off of it. So it's kind of a good substitution to, you know, mix in those things, even though that session or that workout at a given period of the year isn't, typical for what you would usually prescribe and so i think that's really good because you could come on here and say oh yeah here's all my great athletes this is what they do you know week in week out and it's make it seem straightforward and then an athletic or coach tries to mimic it but it's not really the reality is it it's like you're probably not even writing many concrete programs now this time of the year or at least if you are um you're making changes quite a lot depending on uh, how they're responding and holding up exactly exactly so one thing is i I would be interested to know because you have a lot of varieties of um, athletes that are from different backgrounds probably come from different systems prior to coming to you and um i suppose the landscape in the last five years of distance running is changing a little bit with um i guess the europeans um presence in the top five and so forth have you noticed just like with i guess these international athletes that there's a different philosophy that the coaches tend to have versus u.s coaches i know that's probably something you're asked all the time and do you think no, it it's has funny any... go ahead go ahead, finish your question i was like and do you think it has anything to do with what we're seeing like i i don't know i'm just curious so i am embarrassed to say this but fuck it because i need to be i you, when you started before you started the podcast, you said you're going to ask us questions about the Europeans mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. so dominant. And I was like, 
I never noticed that until you just said something. Really? Like, yeah, it's not like I don't notice. I can list off who was in the final of men's 15 final. It's not that I'm not paying attention, but I was like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people. Um, so hmm, why is that? So now I have to be – the reason I say it too is because like I need to think through it. If we're having a bar conversation, I'm just like, what do you think? Well, hmm, I don't know why that is. My sometimes there's just a cyclical nature and nothing is really changed in the approach. Uh, it's just, there's just luck. Like I think of Josh Kerr, Jake Whiteman, Neil Gorley, like they're all Scottish. They're all from like the same club. It's ridiculous that they're in like a final. Mm -hmm. like and it's small from a small town mm -hmm. what is that like are they putting something in the water there so mm -hmm. it's like um it, you know if you know something about the scottish people there's like okay well they would have a tendency to be they're tough but the irish are tough mm -hmm. and so 15 well, is our best UK, event too though historically yeah that is true um the, the uk federation uh you know, they've had a lot of changes there. I, I really, really like the coaching staff from the Federation standpoint, like Christian Malcolm and Steve Vernon. I got to work with them at world this year. I really like them. And so that will help, but that's, there's somewhat new, um, you know, they'll support guys like Josh and Jake. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you look at when there's a ringer, a global popular ringer, like, um, uh, Ingerbritsen mm -hmm. that will have some influence. So maybe it's like a couple of these things where I don't, I don't think it's necessarily there's not this like big thing where brands are starting to sponsor uh, athletes and they hadn't before, or there's all of a sudden coaches know what the hell they're doing. And they didn't five years ago. I think the coaching has been good. I think the brands have been aware. One thing that would change from a support standpoint though, is there are every brand now has a pro team. So it's really competitive. So what's happening is European athletes are getting better chances financially than they used to. Um, you know, you, we, we are like, I'm talking to, a, um, I would be vague about it on purpose, but like a very good runner from Europe. And I wouldn't, it just, I'm more open to it because the US ones, which is the biggest market for sports marketing in running shoe sales, they're all taken up because there's so many roster spots now. So you're just kind of expanding into that. So maybe that's part of it, you know, but cause like, I think of like, um, let's see only Josh and in the, in the top 10, maybe three of them have, that's a lot though. Yeah. I don't know. It could be a compact combination of things. That's mm -hmm. what I think. Luck, randomness. There's time like white, you know, I think Ingrid Brinson's a big deal. Um, and then maybe the sport as a whole is getting more competitive because there's more support in it for the mm -hmm. teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose it's a weird thing. And, and maybe this is an observation that's irrelevant in a way, because we know that number one, it's, it's worth mentioning that Whiteman is a product of the system directly, but you know, Josh is with you and formerly Albuquerque or, or New Mexico and Neil Gurley was, uh, Virginia, Virginia Tech. Tech. Is he yeah. currently based in the US? I don't know that. He is. Yeah, he is currently based in the US. And so is uh, 
Hayward's based in the U.S. too. Okay, yeah. So those yeah. things, those things definitely matter when you you look at them and you say that's the singlet they're wearing, that's the vest they're wearing, but like they're a product of the American system essentially. And um, on top of that, though, I would say that, and there might be something to this, might be not, but I guess in a way, if we look at like the Kenyan domination, and I want to say Kenyan domination with kind of an asterisk beside it, because we know that Kiprop was dominant. Um, but I feel like top two, top three, 800, 1500, there was a presence there on a consistent basis, regardless of Kiprop. But it's funny, maybe, and I could be wrong, that Inger Britson is basically, you know, um, advertising or inspiring the white um, fellow distance runners to kind of like step up because there's a model there of like, hey, we can do it too, and we can be the world champions. We can beat the the Kenyan opposition, and 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 when it wasn't necessarily uh, the case all that many years ago, I don't I don't know, but um, that that matters a lot. Like um, Leon Edwards is a UK based fighter. Exactly. He just won. I was thinking of this. He just won. Yeah. So he was just won the title on Saturday, the 170 pound uh, UFC title, and. He made a point in his press conference to say, I I stayed in London, within the UK, to train because I wanted to prove that you could do it. And um, I – who was – yeah, kids pay attention to that stuff. They do. They do. Like, like I, I can't imagine where, where Jake and Josh are from. You know, you have two global medals from this club – uh, you know, if I had time, I would probably make sure I had like a scout there <laughs> because there's going to be kids that are going to see now they don't have a huge population, but they have a model to go off of now. I think it's super important. Some of that you can relate to some that you can aspire to. So, yeah, I think, I think Ingen Britson, yeah, he's a European guy, looks European, grew up there and like knows. And so that's going to help kids are like, oh shit, I can win a gold medal. Mm-hmm. Like I'm from this area. Mm-hmm. And he was inspired um, by his brothers. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, diversity is like such a cool thing about our sport is you get people that are from different parts of the world that look differently that, that can win. And I think it's it makes it it also makes it so damn competitive. I've said this multiple times and it's not a dig on other sports. This is the hardest sport to be the best at because a lot of people do it. Yeah. Worldwide there's no doubt. I mean, even just looking at the Europeans the last you know, a couple of days. I don't know why it just like seems like it's put all the lenses on the sport. I mean, just being here um, in Ireland and I'm thinking like, yeah, we have our sports that dominate at a community level. We have Gaelic games, which is a, you know, our national sport, but it's the thing is like, when you look like with an open set of eyes um, as an individual sport, like it's like, damn, there's really not much bigger sports than, than athletics or track and field. No. No, and the best people that are the best in the world at it are outliers in like everything, <laughs> like the mental stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, it was cool. You know, being around, I, I think it's somebody like Nick who was a consistent top force globally, or Josh, um, or being around Whiteman a little bit, like, but. Uh, yeah, they're 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 different, man. They could give a TED talk. They could be a CEO. Their Nick's YouTube channel's blowing up for a reason. 
Exactly. Uh, even how Josh handled his fa- his failure at his frustrations at Worlds, like he's going to race Luzon and like how he bounced back from it. I'm like, you can give a talk on that. It's been incredible what he's turned around over the last couple couple weeks here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could even see that from like, and I want to pay reference to your recent kind of docu series that uh, the brain of the beasts was it called? If if I just want to get that title correct, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you could really see the personalities shine through there, and that like just from watching and listening to him, he's someone who's not content with mediocrity at all. And you might say that there's obviously pros and cons to that mentality, but as you say, he could be a CEO. And if you don't think that there's a bit of that in a CEO of a successful company, um, then I would say you're probably mistaken. Just not settling for for anything less than your best. And obviously he's got supreme talent, but you can see that there's that, that grit there as uh, Angela Duckworth coined it um, is, is there in all levels because he's not just looking for you to, I guess, say good things to him after like he's analyzing with you to be told, how can we improve? Like, and it's very much on display in that series. Yeah, that's the the media companies called World's Greatest. They did that docu that four part series, and uh, if people want to watch it, I you said it was really good. It's I don't fantastic. like seeing myself on camera, so fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. And, and we Angela Angela Duckworth came to speak to Brooks actually a few weeks ago. Oh wow! And and yeah, when she was talking about grit, I was like thinking of some of the athletes I've worked with over the last ten years, and some of the really good ones that. It, it it's a, a sustained they can just sustain motivation so well mm-hmm. and it's so intrinsically driven that uh and there's a lot more stability when it's intrinsic like he you know like josh doesn't even know where his like he lost his medal literally the day after he won it he, but he wanted to he would have run through a brick wall to get it he didn't know where it was and he wants gold so you think like, oh, extrinsically, I talked about this in a post. It's like, you would think he cares so much about what you think. And I, you would, if you met him and there'd be something about him that you wouldn't like, it would probably be the fact that he doesn't give a shit what you think. <laughs> now he, he knows the he's a great person, human being. He's funny. He cares about people. So he's engaging. Like he wants to get invited. You know, he knows that you have to be, not that he knows that way, but like, he's a fun guy to be around, but there's a part to him when it comes down to it. And that he just doesn't care. He wants to do it because he thinks he can win. And that's his motivation. He wants to see what he's made out of. Like he wants to see it. Instagram didn't exist. He'd be totally fine. Um, As long as he, and honestly, if nobody even came to watch, I think the only reason why he probably likes having fans there is because it proves that it's super important. So he wants more on the line. And so, yeah, it's an interesting part of their personality trait that I, that I, I, I love to work with them partially because of that because it's just it is on display and it is like our ceo jim weber and our president dan sheard and like they they have this affinity to the athletes i think that's partially why they like because they're similar to them yeah yeah it's a cross-contextual kind of um Mm. in in terms of personality types and so forth i think as well when I'm, i'm i'm listening to you talk about that and i've had these thoughts myself is that I believe what makes something truly authentic and almost intrinsic in terms of whether someone really loves what they're doing is like 
could they do it or would they do it let's say if nobody was watching you know i've often seen with myself and and the behaviors how authentic they are or how intrinsically motivated i am to do them will be based or be most evident when i go to the quiet place and nobody could be there and i'll be fully engrossed in it and it would not matter if anyone ever found out about it but that i just got joy from it in that moment if that makes sense uh, it makes tons of sense yeah just it just kind of solidifies to me yeah um i did that for me and absolutely nobody else could know about it and it wouldn't matter if they did but it's just the fact that um it was it was driven from within that you you ought to engage in that activity or whatever it might be for me that might be just you know going to a track um on a on a cold winter's day and just getting honest work done and again people don't really get to see that and it's not glamorous but it feels right. damn good after you get it done yeah yeah and i want to kind of delve from there into a little bit about how you spend the time of disconnecting from your strenuous work you've talked about working with a mental performance practitioner and so forth but you um just like in the docuseries and and as you post on on social media you're a you're a kind of avid jujitsu um athlete i suppose you'd call her or or um someone who, who really likes to roll around the mats a lot uh, what do you think that does you know we often talk about having separate hobbies to what your real job is or what your real passion is so that you can kind of fuel it uh what how has that been for your coaching career It's been helpful for me for on multiple reasons. Well, one is like when I was 36 and I started doing jujitsu, I first like walked into the gym. Um, I, when I, I was starting to struggle with anxiety and that's very, it's not very rare. It's a little rare at that age, but there was certain things in my life that were happening. There was death threats from Nike so I was, I was under physical threat at meets. And so that's, that starts alerting things in your brain. And so it's, that was there. And then I was going through a, a fairly bad divorce. And so like, yeah, these, t- I had these two major life things. So when I was going to run, which is usually where I could process stuff and just feel better and everybody can kind of relate to that. Like it's why running got, uh, went up so much during the pandemic. I, uh, that wasn't happening anymore. So I was just, it was just a continuum of all these thoughts, the stream of thoughts that were not positive and it was happening while I was running. So it, so, um, and then what also was happening is because I, I ran professionally I, and as I got older, I was like, I was just getting worse at it because of time and age. And I was like, okay, well I should do yoga or meditation that's not something that's very fun to get really good at. No offense to yogis out there. I think it's awesome. But for me, and I was like, but that may be good mentally. And I tried it and I, I, I yoga, yoga, I like to do if people are doing it, but it's just like, I'm, I tend to be like a, like a Husky. Like I need to fucking be going. And so uh, meditation was like good, but my mind would be racing. So I was like, okay, so I want to try something else. And, I also was like, it'd be cool to get better at something as I got older. And I've always really liked combat sports. My dad was a, was a high level wrestler and I grew up watching UFC when I was like 10. And so 
I just like the sport. And so I was like, well, not that I've ever planned on using it, but I'm like, if I had to get into a fight, which is the best one in most military cops and those things that do jujitsu grappling. So I was like, well, that's good. Cause I want to get, I don't want to get punched or kicked in the head on accident. Not that jujitsu is easy, but it's like, I heard it's cerebral. And so, yeah. So I walked in, I got completely crushed by, um, this, uh, 120, 130 pound black, uh, brown belt female sent she crushed me and for six months i'm glad i was an athlete before because i understand delayed gratification for six months i was just getting crushed like to the point where like i was like why am i doing this i'm just like going to practice and getting my ass up but what happened was i wasn't thinking about the other things that were going on in my life and there was a stop it was like i go in can't have my phone and I'm trying to figure out this move and I'm using my body to do it. And I'm so in so present with each thing that's happening or what they're doing that I come out and I was like, oh, it was almost like I blacked out. I was like, I feel a little better. And so, yeah, you fast forward now and uh, a couple, I'm, I lost the fight, but a couple athletes came to watch in March. Um, and, I'm, you know, I competed in it and it was hard and it was like, I was injured going in, work was crazy my weight cut wasn't easy because of work and you know I, I i definitely could beat that guy but then i'm like oh, i want to beat this person but i did it and it was that was fun i get this break away from work and i get more creative and i cannot tell you how many times like i've left practice and i'm like oh this is maybe something i should try with marta or oh you know what this would be cool to do so that's helped so much and then and then i'm in a just a little bit more, I have more space in my brain. And then, uh, I also, I also, the first thing I noticed though, was like how important it is little, little words, like how of encouragement, how much they matter. I'm very internally motivated. Like I don't need a boss. Um, and, uh, I don't need to be told I'm good or bad at what I'm doing. I, I feel like I kind of know that stuff, but like, and I was older than my first coach by a couple of years. And I remember the first time he's like, that because that guillotine choke was amazing danny good job and i was like i felt good about myself walking out of there and i'm like 38 37 years old or whatever and so you know i just i think for me as an at like being an athlete and then going to practice and remembering cueing remembering little things like hey that was good today um laura you did a really good job on this thing like that stuff matters because if, if it matters to me and i'm like this old kind of grumpy person it definitely matters to like an athlete that this is their job so a lot of ways it's helped. And I just like it. Like we've practiced in, um, you know, three hours and I'm like, I got to get my shit done today. It's four. So I can go, go to it. And there's a community for me. They don't outside of track. I get to use my body, which is helpful. Kind of like playing the guitar, but different because it's like sweating and all those things that come that are benefit from that. So for me, it's great. You know, like not, I know it wouldn't be for everybody, but, uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds honestly wonderful when we hear these cliches of, you know, the best discoveries are kind of found when you're the furthest place away from your work, so to speak. And just seeing in real time how you've kind of found that in, in, in your own way. And I think community is a massive thing if we're always stuck around the same people, i.e., you know, highly strong athletes and, and so forth, like if you have a separate set of people who basically may not even know what you're, you're doing in your full day, 
full-time job it's like just a really refreshing way to kind of like I think identity with anybody who does things at a very high level or or better yet just puts a lot of work into something it's easy to get engrossed in that I know athletes talk about it a lot where um and particularly actually was mentioned in the docuseries where one of your your ladies had mentioned that um having your whole identity based on track and field or being the track athlete is it's kind of a dangerous ground to walk on it's funny my my own mental performance practitioner who had on this podcast talked very much about that and how um you really do need to cultivate healthy self-esteem and self-confidence comes from other outlets which is so funny because we'd often think that time spent on something else is counterintuitive to the thing we want the most yes yep I felt guilty when I first started going um, because I wasn't, I should be reading about track, but I am better at it because I'm not doing it. Yeah. It's, it is, it is interesting. I, that, that was the thing I had to struggle with because I'll, I'll even, uh, I don't do it around big competitions. So I don't want to get hurt and have to be like in the hospital, when, but um, yeah, I'll work it in even when I'm at meets, like I was in, when I've been in Europe, I've rolled during the world championships and sparred. Um, and yeah, I've rolled in probably like six different countries. I rolled with an I, Israeli special forces guy that didn't even speak English at, at uh during a diamond league. It's cool. But I was like, it was great. You know, it gave me something to do and, and uh, healthy and got my, got that creative part of my brain going because because jujitsu is so there's it's it is the most vast martial art out there. There's so much that's going on, and so um, it's it's good to have that there because it's not any different than I think people you know Alzheimer's is less in people who use their brain in a challenging way during the course of their life, and so I, I feel like if those neurons and those those parts of my brain are firing while I'm doing this, I'm gonna be more creative in the workouts I'm writing, and I can pick things up more receptive at practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't feel bad since like I, sometimes if I'm fucking working a ton, man, like I, I will go like I've had it now where, and I would never do this. I'm like, I will show up ten minutes late to their lift. It's happened maybe twice, and so I don't do it a lot. But I'm like, I'll do a private one-on-one session. It's the only time in five days that I could fit it in. It just might cut cut into their, you know, their warm up or their lift, and I'll do it because I'm like, I, I, I'll be, I don't, you know, I'm working. 60, 70 hours this week, it's fine. I'm in this 10 minutes, but like that would not be how I was before, but I'll do that because I know that it's important for me to spend time in this area. And it, it means that it probably a better version of you shows up for however long that practice is going to exist beyond that 10 minutes, right? Yes. Like I've, I've put myself into the ground working too much. Yeah. Yeah. The, your mood is probably increased. And I like what you said there with just firing the neurons and uh, challenging in different ways like problem solving in one context assists a problem solving almost in another and it's like that concept from uh, i don't know if you ever read the book range by david epstein and he kind of mm-hmm. talks about like building the holistic person and uh how like that analogical thinking kind of trumps uh specialists in a set area that having people with more generalized experiences can can actually be helpful to when you then solve a very specific problem almost and uh, kind of made me think of that when um, you were talking about it there. Mm, yeah, that's good. Yeah. 
So how many races have you got left on the calendar? I know that it's post-Worlds, and so probably not everyone is continuing their seasons at this point, but um, how many have you got left? Uh, so Josh goes Friday. If he's top three, I think he will qualify for the World fi- for Diamond League final. So that's his goal. And so he's got one or two left. And then Marta has four left, and then Nia has two. A lot of people, like Brandon Kidder just did Nakax. David Ribich did Falmouth. Um, Lori raced in a meet here in Seattle. So, uh, you know, three of them finished up last week. And kind of just as the season's gone on in the past two, three weeks, people have been shutting it down. Mm-hmm. So, do you, yeah. Do you give people varied breaks based on, like, their health status and stuff? Or how? what's their general rule of thumb for, like, off-season for a distance? Because this is different where... Well, for NCA athletes, like they're going into cross and everything like that, but you probably, you know, get to decide a little bit more about what you believe is like best for them versus like dictating a schedule, right? Yeah, yeah, we have more more flexibility. Um, I want them to mentally shut down and get away from the sport, and so, and then I want their bodies and our hormonal system to kind of reset. So they do between ten days and three weeks of. Just every other day, they run a little bit, and that's from from ten seconds so that so they don't get hurt coming back. So somebody who's super healthy and motivated, you know, ten days is enough time, and then they just start building back from there. They're building back mileage, or just doing strides. They're doing core work, and then they might get into the gym a little bit. But we will start, you know, they depending on how long their season goes, they'll have between four and eight weeks of an off season. And then when we start up in October, we're starting up with the intention of like. They should have some sort of baseline. They shouldn't be out of shape, but they should be detrained, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we use that time, October to January, to build to build up in every facet. And so, um, you know, there is, we likely won't, maybe one or two of them would race in December, the cross-country meet in Texas. Um, but uh, most of them will just be building, you know, till indoors and, and open up at Milrose Games or something like that. Mm-hmm. So detrained, when you say that, is that just from a perspective of they've kind of touched on every element, but they haven't really hit a high dosage on anything? Yeah, exactly. Like, And if they are somebody that has weight fluctuations, uh, you know, they lose weight. Some people are just, they just race weight all year. Some people have, they lose, you know, they put on a couple of pounds. They're not like, they're just not sharp at all, at all. Um, I don't know. Somebody like Josh, if he ran, if he could run 345, 348, and a 1500, 348 when he comes in October 10th, fine, great, it's good enough. You know, like he's not not running, but he's not doing any workouts that are hard. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, I mean, we, we live in a world where not everybody plays by the same rules, even though there are a rule set for what you can do. But I, I have just found over 10 years, if you're doing things legally and ethically that's kind of the way you got to do it like they have to their body has to reset a little bit mm-hmm. these people that are unshaped using air quotes all year round my my alerts go off because <clears throat> if it was possible to do that we would just do that that's way easier <laughs> right yeah that's a, that's a good heuristic that i've never heard of is just like if they maintain shape what well, what's what's in the water but um Another thing is that I didn't touch on earlier and we probably didn't go into it, but you have mentioned bits and pieces about it is like 
Are you touching a little bit more on the weight training for performance with the 815 guys than the five? Because I know you mentioned that like the ratios maybe for or percentages for 15 and five don't vary that much, but it does vary quite a bit for 800. Are you including more Olympic lifts and things of that nature with your your kind of shorter distance athletes more so than the 5K athletes? Or is it pretty universal across the board? I've gone done both different things over the last 10 years. This year, we had them all do the same type of lift. And the reason why was, and there's variances within the individual, but from a prescriptive menu of lifting, um, I had them do the same because, but if you were to put press me further, I would say the 5k people are lifting more like eight and 15 people. I didn't move the eight and 15 more towards the five and went the other way. And my thought was, well, uh, like if you watch a championship race, they in the five or 10, they're sprint, they're fucking rolling that last 600 200 um you know it's not like you look at somebody who can run a really good 10 they could probably run a pretty dang good 15 eight eight might get a little different you know but um yeah so i had them start doing that because i thought of like peak power being really strong musculoskeletal wise was more advantageous for the, the longer distance runners in the team so so yeah. it, it seems like it's been a pretty constant element for you and your 815 people regardless the last few years because you've always seen a need for that quality, so to speak. Even even 5 and 10, they've all marathoners, they've all lifted. Okay. It's just like if you start getting into the really detailed like sets and reps, Yeah, I've pulled the 5, 10 more towards the 15. Yeah. Yeah, that, that yeah. but sense. they've all lifted all the time. Yeah, and they've always been more on the side of like power. Mm-hmm. It, lifting it doesn't matter the event it, it the, maybe the 10 5 and 10 to do a little bit less in the way because they're just running more and i want to get hurt but that's that's it an aspect that i feel distance runners always want to kind of get into their arsenal so to speak or or part make it part of their training repertoire but never know how to really introduce it is plyometric training and it kind of would address some of those key functions that you've talked about there where you would be able to kind of be more responsive or potentially even improve running economy, but it's always hard to, I guess, show how that fits in with all the other things that you want to get done too, i.e. the actual running and how you can right. do it in a safe way and how you can do it in a way that's like, I guess, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's not only safe for it's from, from a volume standpoint, but it's, safe because people know what they're doing you know do you do you have a place for that in the in the program and if so what are your kind of i guess uh principles for how it's been performed so yeah we do um because plyometrics and they're part of our lift too plyometrics are a little bit of a bridge towards the lifting to the running because they're open circuit multiple plane movements and i like it for potentiation i like it for pre-workout i like it for hormonal changes um i do think they get hit different ranges so they get stronger from it so they usually do those the day before they work out um and we don't and and mentally they're fun the athletes uh because it's not like a running workout but 
form matters. And so the stereo's out, people are in the field or on the track, and there's not like, you know, they have 45 minutes to an hour to do really 30 minutes of work. So they focus for the 20 seconds, goof around, you know, the guys give each other a hard time about who's weaker. And then they, uh, they, uh, yeah, so there's that, that team bonding part of it is on, you know, we, we do stuff throwing to each other. So there's a lot of reasons why I think it's beneficial. Now, if you're looking at like a sprinter, yeah, they would do more of it, but uh, yeah, like they have to like, they have to sprint. I mean, if you're in the 1500, you're running pretty damn quick that last 150. Mm. Yeah. You know, like Josh can run, you can run 16 low for 16 seconds low for 150. It's not slow. No, it's not. Can can definitely, uh, definitely raise my hand to that. I suppose another thing that you're mentioning there, with just when you're kind of introducing the more biomechanical aspect, is that when you're doing these routines with them, you're probably teaching them that bodily awareness. That yes, you're saying verbally through the through the the drills and the a skips and stuff, but like you really have to build a, an idea of awareness when you're doing plyometrics because it does come with that kind of higher risk. But also like there's like, I don't know for, for me, it feels like it's easier to sell them on the idea that doing this is like going to give you some, something back if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think they could draw that line easier. I agree. Yeah. They could see that, see that, see the, the application. Right. Yep. And foot strike mm-hmm. is so important. And if you're getting a lot of leakage, let's just say, you know, excessive plantar flexion, uh, you'll you'll know. And, you know, you're trying to do big mileage on top of that or whatever it might be. And you're putting a lot more forces through the body in those, that single contact. So I'm sure uh, they'll, they'll quicker, quickly realize um, if, it, if you know, if you want to get the return on it. Um, great. You got to do it this way. If you don't want to get injured. Great. You also need to do it this way. Um, yeah. 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 Another thing I did want to talk about, and I didn't really go into it too much when we talked about, I guess, when we were speaking, distributing loads and stuff and energy systems within um, um, 8 to 15, 5K runs and stuff. You, you, you spend two camps a year, I believe, in altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard different things from distance athletes. They're talking about times that kind of dip during altitude training. Like what are your kind of expectations when you try to teach athletes about, I, I guess what I'm saying is not your expectations, but rather how do you teach athletes about the expectations or the adaptations that are going to occur in altitude because they get used to seeing said time for said workout and so forth um how, how do you kind of walk them through that process well i explained what ha- what's happening so it kind of goes back to biomechanics mm-hmm. so i think they need to understand that that foundational knowledge so that can help but the biggest thing actually is their teammates because if somebody's like the ones that are veterans no problem mm-hmm. the first year that have never been up there they they it doesn't matter how much knowledge they have they struggle with it Mm-hmm. so the the you know the teammate saying like hey my first two weeks up here i'm running 20 seconds slower on my easy days and it feels like shit but it gets better and 
And then from there, I just, you know, the temple runs are probably the only area specifically where they really need to be reminded. And sometimes they're just like too bullheaded to acknowledge that oxygen matters <laughs> to, to pace. Um, and they will run too hard and pay the price, even with some of the veterans. So I, you know, I do think being a little bit humorous about it does help because it's different up there and they have to adjust and it's, they have to understand that it's, the stress is just higher on their body all day. So there's going to be some cost to that. Um, so yeah, those are usually the ways I go around it, but the teammates are really helpful because they're the ones doing it. And if the ones that have been there a couple of years that know what happens, if they're not freaking out about how crappy and slow they're feeling, then the rookies tend to be like, okay, well, if they're not worried about it and they ran, you know, this time last year and got this place at the championships, then I, I shouldn't be worried either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know people have like general rules of thumb for, like when that block appears within the calendar year based on how it sits in comparison to a championships. Like when do you, how far removed do you like to get up there um, prior to say your, you know, national championships that you had this year that were quite closely packed together? Uh, We should probably go up. So we can come, we like to be up there for five weeks and then, have that be have them be able to come down for two. So you're looking at seven weeks. About about. There's variance there. Some people can can come down, you know, right before and race, so they stay a bit longer. But about that is a good is a good starting point in seeing what individual um you know phenotypes come from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not only are you trying to kind of gauge or educate the younger people on what they might feel um, when they get up there, but you're also trying to gauge as a coach when they get down, like how guess close they can toe the line of um, adaptation from the actual um, training that's been applied or the stimulus that's been applied through the through the elevation. I suppose that's interesting. Yeah, you 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 write a lot of interest in um, posts on Instagram. It's something I've noticed for for quite a while. Stu with someone who had, had kind of reposted, if you will, on Instagram, um, some of your work, and you had mentioned that you don't really like posting a whole lot about yourself. Like what, what inspires you to kind of tell the stories of your athletes? And, and I can see what's beneficial about it, but I'd really like to hear it from you. Like just what's the motivation and about, cause you're very articulate. Well, I just say that first of all, like you have a great way of describing um different emotions and reading it as if i was part of the actual thing but um yeah it's, it's it seems very personal because it's not on the brooks beasts track club account as such it's on yours it's the second time you stopped so you stopped me with something um the first was the europeans being so dominant in the 15 uh well i i am not saying this to be humble i very honestly like i think that i'm pretty bad at instagram and social media and i don't particularly like it um i wish i could hire somebody to do it for me because i have thoughts and i'm cool with them being out there because uh you know i'm like anybody else i like my thoughts and so i'm not worried about having them out there i'm pretty thick-skinned i don't really care what you know people who aren't my friends or family think so but I, yeah, I, uh, I don't know what my inspiration is because I think I'm, I wish I did it more. I wish I really, I tried last year, um, 
one of Stu's former athletes, I was going to hire her to to run my Instagram because like I feel like I should make it bigger, but I but I don't make enough to be able to afford that that thing, even though it's probably an investment. And then I don't, and then I forget to not post for like weeks at a time. Even talking to you now, I'm like, I should just post tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but if I think of like, well, why do I even do any of it at all? Well, part of it because it feels like I have to, because I have like a, I, you know, I'm working a public facing job and it's 2022 and that's what you do. Um, but for me, I, I, uh, I care a lot about doing things the right way. And, and I think that when my experience is, it's very hard to do that. And so, but there's a lot of cross learning that can happen. So when I'm trying to like, I'm thinking about a post thinking about something it's usually just it's usually as simple as like this has been on my mind and i want to talk about it a little bit and it, that's kind of it like i don't even know i don't even go on to see how many like sometimes i will like it's just comments i'll look to see because there's questions um but usually they're pretty like people suppose stupid stuff like one person i was like Josh should have been more aggressive. I'm like, did you watch the fucking race? Like, the dumbest. I mean, even if you know the sport at all, like, I, I, I had somebody close to me say that too. That's supposed to know the sport. I was like, and so I could get, I, I you know, I see that stuff. I'm like, are you, you know, is it, is it really that kind of ignorant, or they, I should kind of tell them like why, how detrimental it would have been if he did that. But yeah, I just like talking. I like it's hard. I want to talk about it because I think everybody has hard stuff that they're going through. And there's a lot of learning that I get from people talking about it. And I think it's fun to celebrate things that are just awesome and that go really well. Um, my job is cool and I want to talk about it. I think the people I work with are cool. So yeah, there's not a, like it's pretty, uh, you know, I mean, you're talking to me that you should probably there's probably not as much of a difference between what happens on social media versus like how I am as a person. So they're pretty like they're, they are a little bit of like a stream of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm a horrible speller and stuff. So I will like have Becky maybe read it or some a friend because I, I'm like an idiot with that. But yeah, I just kind of post it. Like I, I know what I want to post about. Um, I've been like for 10 days, I just keep forgetting, but like, it's been cool because I, because the team's smaller right now because it's time of season. So I've been like pacing Nia and it's just a different way to coach somebody. I wouldn't want to do it all year. There's favoritism and um, dual roles. You know, I'm not her teammate. I'm not, mm -hmm. but, but it's been really as a coach, it's been fun to just be shoulder to shoulder with her for part of a workout and really like be next to her while she's doing it. And, and just simply being healthy enough to, to run. And so, you know, we talk about run happy. So that'd be something, I don't even know how I'd phrase it, but just talking about how I liked it. I just enjoyed the last three weeks of having a couple people at practice and having time to run with them. There's something that I think many people would agree that, you know, Instagram inherently is quite superficial as a whole, um, or at least like it, 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 
it promotes people to become more superficial let's say and where i start to see like or just to organize whether i should post something or whether i should have in the past it's either deeply personal from like just a life event or experience as you said something that just makes you happy or something that's potentially valuable to someone else and i think people don't recognize how when thought out well like i think your posts are how um i guess valuable they can be because i remember i was listening to a brett bartholomew podcast before i art of coaching he wrote the conscious coaching book that many yeah. people are familiar with and you know there was a it was an episode on the sin of self-promotion and he says how he begins to disseminate whether he should put something out there a piece of content is whether it's truly valuable or not there's this fake salesmanship that can be very much a part of the mainstream social media channels that we see and then there is something that you know could potentially do some good for someone else and that is where he starts to make the decision of whether you should feel guilty about bringing something to the forefront or not. And uh, I think that's really important. And I'll say this as well from someone who doesn't know you, but, you know, there is really not a big difference between what you've said in your posts and what you're trying to put out there character wise to what is visually kind of almost apparent from the docuseries as well, which shows that it is, I think, authentic and so you've said um when you're posting like you kind of aim to be yourself and not really anything else you're not really concerned with you know those opinions of others and so forth and i think like that's honestly between those two examples that i've seen is is is, is actually very true like that you are doing that and i think in turn the docuseries with seeing live footage of how you coach people how your athletes behave and all of that on top of the Instagram posts, um, like they're beneficial, they're valuable. They fall into the category of valuable. That's my point. And uh, I think social media has a lot of negative elements to it, but I believe there has been posts that have changed my day for the better or have given me perspective on a matter that I was struggling with. And so how I try to curate my social media feed is that I get cur- I get glimpses of that more often than i get glimpses of the rubbish what i think is rubbish it's not that what i think is you know good is is good and bad is bad but like i'm just gonna you know say that f- and speak for myself on that yeah i yeah i would say the only thing that's probably different is i'm less serious i'm there's an element of me that is way more goofy and not as PR. Like my favorite show is always Sunny in Philadelphia. I mean, just just that alone is like mm-hmm. I don't have that on social media because mm-hmm. I don't want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but um, and and I don't take myself all that seriously mm-hmm. um, most of the day. Like, uh, yeah, I goof around quite a bit. So that, that part's not on there just because. Um. I, don't know, I think humor is hard to get across. And I, and now I've just kind of known that like people who follow me, they want to know about track. Maybe they're a little curious about martial arts, mm-hmm. but it's sports. And so if I start making jokes, um, you know, they, they probably would tune out. Yeah. So. No, I, I actually 100% <laughs> agree with you on that. That's the very, very hard part of yourself to like put out there in a safe way. 
because for me like i mean i'm not gonna go tell people like or or post a clip of me watching team america or something in 2004 right. I, I like it's a movie i love i don't care like you know people listen to this you can say what you want like that's oh, not pc and what you know it's it's just funny man like what it is what it is like i just i laugh when i see that stuff it's rubbish it's it's but i just don't look into it that much and it makes me giggle and uh yeah you can't really put that out there and so like you, they don't get to see all sides of you but i think for the sides that they do get to see it's like at least from the coaching standpoint like it's or at least the 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 yeah i guess the professional side like they get to see it on a pretty accurate level uh-huh yeah i, I joke at practice too i mean it's like humor is super important but yeah right. absolutely i think when you're uh, i think i mentioned this briefly to my last guy nick peterson who's the you know jumps coach at university of florida it's you know it's it's a part of showing your um humane side that like you're not just the coach you're a person and when the athlete can see that you're a person they're more likely to find that there's a room to kind of relate with you and i think probably a line that you have to tread carefully with there but it, at the same time if it's if they see you as a robot and uh, someone who's super serious all the time, they might be a little less likely to come with you about that serious problem, if that makes sense. Or for sure, the part of life that you haven't really let yourself kind of show that you've experienced or something. I don't know. It's a weird one. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. So I think Danny, I've I've definitely bombarded you with probably more than I than you bargained for, and and more that I put on the the whole uh you know communication before this so and i know that you know probably probably important that you get your uh your activity in for the day whether it's rolling around a mat or doing a bit more running with one of your athletes um but we have talked an awful lot about your social media and so as i give every opportunity to each guest on here to show how they can follow you more um as you kind of continue to post these life events and and experiences with your with your track club how can we do that uh on instagram i'm danny t mackey so it's danny my middle name is timothy so it's at danny t mackey and then on twitter i am dt mac but i don't really yeah i post on both of those so maybe i'll do more maybe i'll hire somebody to do it for me Mm -hmm. so they can curate the post but Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you can follow me on there uh, we got a couple more races over next month and then I'm excited for, for the season of even next year. And I, I probably will set some goals to be a little bit more active on there. I'm having a kid in the end of September. So, you know, I'm touring around the idea of like that part of my personal life. I think the stuff that happened in 2015 where with the death threats is really, I've, I've like shut that off social media wise. Cause I have a very protective part of me that, I don't want that to happen again. Have these people go after people that I care about, but uh, it'll be interesting having a kid. So I, I'm like, want, there's a part of me that wants to share it, um, but we'll see how comfortable I am with it. Yeah. Well, congratulations about that. And, yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, I'm sure that that decision will will come well informed in time. But yeah, I do appreciate you coming on here and just sharing um, the wealth of knowledge you have. And as I said, guys, you know, if you haven't checked out the Brain of the Beasts uh, on YouTube. 
that's a 50 to an 50 minute to an hour well spent i I listened to it or watched it myself today and i think complements uh the discussion we've had here today very very well and um i would encourage you of course to go and follow uh danny on social media because i think the nuances of this board and and the highs and the lows are depicted on few accounts better than than your own danny so i just i want to say that because that's just what i think and um again thank you for coming on here and guys um thank you for sticking with me listening to these episodes um getting experts like uh, danny on here is is a true privilege and i'm sure you've enjoyed listening to him uh share his knowledge over the last hour and a half so i hope you enjoy the rest of your season and wish you all the best until next time take care